our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word. Is Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 10. Which just means we are now moving at full tilt in our ongoing study of Hebrews at Christ the King. If you've been with us here at all recently, you know that we are now in the heart of this written sermon. The pastor is set, poised to explain what he earlier said in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, before he took a chapter and a half to make sure that his hearers were actually ready to listen. So if you look back at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, that's where we'll start. The pastor writes there in Hebrews 5, verse 9, that Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The pastor has a lot to say about that. And as we've said recently, it's vitally important because to the degree that we grasp this, to the degree that we understand the significance of this, that Jesus is our high priest, to that degree, we will be encouraged to do what Hebrews always insists we must do, to endure to the end, to live by faith, to do good, to offer to God a sacrifice of praise in our lives, to hold fast our confession, or as the pastor says in chapter 10, verse 36, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's why we're working so hard to try to understand what the pastor's saying. That's why I'm subjecting you, week after week, to the complexity of these Hebrews passages. Because I think that it's what we have to do. If we really want to experience in our lives something of this strong encouragement that we were talking about at the end of last week. If you were here last week, you remember we were for the second week in chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And if you'll look there again now at verse 17 of chapter 6, the pastor says, So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me. The unchangeable character of his purpose, because you remember God's fully committed to bringing about what he promised to Abraham all the way to the end. Remember? So what did God do to show that? To demonstrate that to us as the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. Which last week we said means... I think that Jesus is made a high priest forever in accordance with the oath God swears in Psalm 110, verse 4. We'll come back to that, talk about that again. But that's what happened. He made Jesus a priest forever. Why would God do all this? Why would God want, yearn, to show and demonstrate to us this unchangeable character of his purpose by making Jesus our high priest? Well, the pastor tells us, verse 18 says, so that 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And then if you'll just focus in on verse 20 for a moment, this is going to be the setup for where we're going to go in Hebrews for a while. We have this anchor, we have this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the pastor says in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you could just take that verse 20 and see almost exactly what the pastor is going to be talk talking about for the next four chapters. Chapter 7, where we're beginning today, is the explanation of the second half of that verse about the sons becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's first thing up. As in Hebrews 7, the pastor will explain the significance of the foreverness of Jesus' priesthood and how that's connected. It's hard to understand, but how that's connected to his being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, that's chapter 7. Then, chapters 8 and 9 and about half of 10 are focused essentially on the first half of that verse 20 from chapter 6, where the pastor lays out the significance in these chapters of such an eternal high priest entering into the heavenly most holy place, being the forerunner of the people of God there. That's where this eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek has gone. And there's a lot the pastor wants to say about that fact. So basically four chapters in Hebrews now will be spent just to explain what that one verse says. There'll be some other things thrown in too, but but, you know, since that's the thing that guarantees the promise, if you remember last week, since Jesus being the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who's entered into the presence of God, is the thing that's supposed to give you strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before you, I just say to you, it's worth it. It's worth it, four chapters because I think it'll make a difference in our lives if we understand these things better. I think it has to, because having that kind of strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope, that'll change how we face trials and temptations. That'll change how we deal with the joys and sorrows of life. That'll change how we think about our goals, our priorities, our obedience, our faithfulness, and our daily lives. I mean, I just, I just think it impacts everything to grasp this as best we can. This is what the pastor is saying to us. So we need to follow the pastor's lead as he moves now into chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. But as you've now come to expect in the sermon series in Hebrew, following the pastor's lead is not always easy to do. And it's sure not this morning. We begin this morning focused on what it means to say that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But let me start 
by reviewing something that is fundamental, and that is what we were saying. I said it a few minutes ago quickly. We dwelt on it last week a little longer. The pastor's getting that from somewhere, right? And as we said last week, that somewhere that he gets this idea that Jesus is forever after the order of Melchizedek, a high priest, he gets it from Psalm 110, verse 4. Because that's what it says. Hebrews chapter 7 is, in fact, itself an exposition of just that verse, Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, you may already know that Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Even our Lord himself quotes it, at least verse 1 of it. For example, in Matthew 22, verse 41, just listen. Matthew 22, verse 41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and here Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, in other words, Jesus is saying, that psalm's about me, right? And there's a lot we could say and should say sometime or somebody should say sometime about Psalm 110. But for now, it's enough, I think, just to recognize this is a regularly cited psalm in the New Testament. It's as a psalm that refers to the Messiah. Jesus himself claims it, and the apostles and other writers of the New Testament regularly teach and refer to it. It shows up in Acts. It shows up in different places. Psalm 110 was crucial in the thinking of the earliest Christians. Which makes it a little bit remarkable, I think, that nowhere else in the New Testament besides Hebrews do we find reference to the fourth verse of Psalm 110, which is the verse that mentions Melchizedek. Last week, we saw this, that the pastor already has quoted Psalm 110, verse 4, or part of it, in Hebrews 5, verse 6. So if you have your Bibles open, look back now at Hebrews 5, and look at verses 5 and 6, if you would. The pastor tells us that at the time when Jesus was appointed by him who said to him, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that's not Psalm 110, that's Psalm 2, <laughs> verse 7, that's okay. This is a quotation that also shows up in chapter 1, right? When Jesus has ascended to the throne to sit at the right hand of his Father, this is the quotation that opens that whole string of Psalm quotations, and you know Psalm 110, verse 1 is the quote that ends that whole string of quotations, so it's kind of in view there. But then in verse 6, it's explicit. And as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. In other words, that's Jesus. Jesus as the ascended, resurrected and ascended Son of God. So, if that verse from the widely known Psalm 110 is the oath that confirms the promise. That's what we argued at length last week. If Jesus has become a priest forever, 
after the order of Melchizedek. That's where the pastor wants to begin his explanation of Jesus as high priest. Then what is the first obvious question? Well, it's who's, who's Melchizedek, right? Only watch this because here you move into what the pastor is actually focusing on here. The issue isn't just who's Melchizedek, though that matters. The issue is what is it about this being a priest after the order of Melchizedek that distinguishes you from being a priest in, say, the order of the Levites or something, who are also mentioned in our passage this morning. I mean, a priest is not just a priest. There's something different here. And you see, the thing Psalm 110 verse 4 is highlighting, and that the pastor is going to pick up big time through chapter 7, is that a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is eternal. It lasts forever. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the thing chapter 7 focuses in on and that we'll consider a lot of next week. Just, but just look down at verses 23 to 25 of our chapter, Hebrews 7, and you see this. The former priests, the pastor writes there, verse 23, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, this is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Which is exactly what Psalm 110 verse 4 is saying, right? And then finish the thought in verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You hear the emphasis the pastor is drawing. Jesus is high priest forever. Jesus lives forever. This is the final note played at the very end of the chapter in verse 28. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, Psalm 110 verse 4, which came later than the law, I'll worry about that next week, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. End of chapter. <laughs> right? That's the first point the pastor will explore here about Jesus as our high priest. It's the fact that he's the high priest forever. That all that will be said about what Jesus does as high priest, what his sacrifice accomplishes, what it means that he's already entered into this inner place behind the curtain, the very presence of God. Marvelous as all of that is, it's the eternality of it all that becomes the bedrock that makes Jesus unlimitedly effective as our high priest. Only if the high priesthood of Jesus is forever can we have the kind of encouragement that the pastor and God himself intends for us to have. Only if the benefits that come from Jesus being our high priest go on forever can we be confident concerning the certainty of the promise. That's the idea. So then to begin to explore that connection, to see how this foreverness of the son being high priest is connected to being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because that's what the psalm says. Well, where else is the pastor going to turn than to the only other place in the entire Old Testament that mentions Melchizedek? That would be Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. So...
what we're going to do, or try to do, is consider these 10 verses in Hebrews 7 alongside the passage from Genesis 14 in its context, which is too big a thing, I know. We will not, uh, we're not even going to get close to the bottom of all the issues that are here, though some of them come up next week as well, so we'll have more chance then. I know that. <laughs> For once, I'm not going to go into all the details of everything. If we can, I want to try and keep the main thing the main thing, which I think is that in Melchizedek, the pastor sees a type of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our great high priest. That the pastor in using Psalm 110 verse 4 as the point from which he reads Genesis 14 is not trying to just say a whole bunch of stuff about Melchizedek, though he does say things about Melchizedek. You have to keep in view why. And I think the reason why the pastor does this is that he wants us to better understand and appreciate the Son, who is our eternal high priest, to whom Melchizedek points. And he wants us to understand that so that we might have strong encouragement to endure, as we've already said. So, we'll be looking here first at the significance of Melchizedek in verses 1 to 3, Hebrews 7. And then the superiority of Melchizedek, though this really goes more into next week, in verses 4 to 10 of Hebrews 7. And just try to keep in mind, even if you get lost in the, the details of this, that everything the pastor says in these 10 verses is meant to point us to the Son. It's meant to deepen our faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. So I don't want us to get too bogged down. But with that, we move into the first, the, uh, the significance of Melchizedek now in verses 1 to 3. And what we get right away in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 7 is the pastor's summary of what Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20 says. So let me read those verses in Hebrews, and then we're going to go back and look at quite a while at Genesis. So Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, this Melchizedek mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4, right? This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. <laughs> and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Right. The slaughter of the king. What is going on? So we turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Though maybe, you know, maybe you know Genesis 14 really well. Let me first try to establish the context. I want to try and get at, if I can, why Melchizedek is even here in Genesis. That's my goal here initially. Before we can appreciate the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who is the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we have to know what's Melchizedek even doing here in Genesis 14, I think. In Genesis 14, if you turn back and look there so you see what we're doing, in Genesis 14 we're in the middle, <laughs> just hang in there, the middle of a narrative structure that has to do with Abram and Lot. 
This is a structure that begins in Genesis 13 and actually doesn't end until much later in Genesis 18 and 19, if you know how that goes. But here in Genesis chapters 13 and 14, we begin that narrative about Abram and Lot, and we're still very early on in the whole Abrahamic narrative, right? If you just look back in chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, God makes these promises. The promise that Hebrews refers to, the blessing to Abraham. And then the rest of chapter 12, you have a threat to the promise from Pharaoh, but the Lord delivers Abraham. The end of chapter 12, they leave Egypt, despite Abraham's failure there. And then you get to chapter 13, and there's this separation. And Abram, remarkably, this is a remarkable thing for Abram to do, he allows Lot to choose where he wants to go. They, they're not going to be able to stay all together. Abram gives Lot the choice. And what happens is that Lot chooses Sodom. And the whole Abraham and Lot narrative thing here and later on will revolve around the city of Sodom. And if you know Genesis, you know what the consequence of Lot's choice here will be, ultimately. Even now, though, in chapter 13, we get a clue. Look at chapter 13, verse 12. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. That would be to the west of the Dead Sea, whereas Sodom, Gomorrah, these other places are more to the east of the Dead Sea. Verse 12, he settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And then you just keep reading and you see it feels like a bit of a contrast then in verses 14 to 18 when the Lord now speaks to Abram after Lot had separated and Abram's gone to Canaan. The Lord then reiterates the blessings. He says, lift up your eyes and look, verse 15, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. You already you begin to sense that Abram and Lot are in very different places here. Then chapter 14. Uh, there, there forms a coalition of kings from the east. Five kings, is that right? Five. Five kings from the east, they join forces. They mean war. And so against them, other kings come together in verse 8. And these other kings that come together against the five kings, these other kings include the king of Sodom, where Lot's gone, right? Okay, these other kings then go out to do battle against these five eastern kings, but they lose. And the text says that all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions are taken. And they also take Lot, verse 12, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. But then word comes to Abram about this. And when Abram hears about it, verse 14 says, he led forth his trained men. And verse 15, he and his servants defeated them. And he brought back all the possessions and also Lot and the whole thing. And Abram's the victor. I mean, big moment, right? So then here we are. <laughs> In verse 17 of Genesis, chapter 14, and this is where Hebrews picks things up. Only not everything that's in the context here is talked about in Hebrews, and that's why I'm doing all this. So stay in Genesis with me first. It says, after his return, after Abram's return from the defeat of Cherdolaomer, 
Some, somebody should name their kid Chertolahomer. <laughs> and the kings who were with him, that Eastern coalition of kings, right? The king of Sodom, whose people and possessions Abram just rescued, went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Now keep in mind, Sodom's already been labeled by the narrator as a wicked place, right? So this, this is ominous. What is this going to mean, that the king of Sodom is going out to meet Abram? Well, what you find out if you go over to verse 21, just skip over to verse 21, is that it's about the king of Sodom actually rather churlishly saying nothing by way of thanks to Abram in any way, in any sense. He only says, very terse in the Hebrew, give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. Which I read as a test, actually. Because at this point, I think the question is, is Abram the one to whom God had reiterated the blessings after he had settled in Canaan, not in Sodom? Is he going to take Sodom's possessions? And the answer is, thankfully, no. Abraham refuses the wealth of Sodom. He's not going to make the mistake that Lot made, even though it's offered to him. Look at what he says, Abram says, in verse 22 to explain that. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Don't forget that title, that language. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. No, I will take nothing, Abram says, which is great, I think, because I think it means Abraham's trusting the promises of the Lord here. Abram's depending on the promises of God's blessing that had been reiterated to him. So he refuses any appearance of imitating Lot's choice to go to Sodom or depend on Sodom. But now... Look again at the language that Abram uses there in verse 22. He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Why is Abraham using that exact language there in verse 22 as he makes that decision? How is it that in this moment, Abram's holding fast to the promise by faith? You see, and the answer is, I think, it's just my read of Genesis, I think it's because of Melchizedek. Because between the verse that says that the king of Sodom was coming to meet Abram, verse 17, and then the conversation that they have in verses 21 and following, what's in between those? Melchizedek. Who is he? Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then this is the most remarkable parenthesis I can think of in Genesis. He was priest of God Most High, which is incredible. This is the first mention of any priest in the Bible. And here he is with Father Abraham, the one who had the promises, right? And what happens? Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Hear the language that, that Abram's going to repeat to the king of Sodom there? Same terms. 
God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then at the end of verse 20, it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I mean, this is incredible. And there's a lot I don't know how to explain to you. Like I, can, I don't know how to explain for you how this Canaanite king is priest of God Most High, which I'm reading to mean the Lord, given how Abram picks it up. And given how Abram, in fact, responds to this priest. I don't know exactly how Abram recognized what was going on here, but he did. And by faith, he responds we just don't know anything about Melchizedek other than what this says. That was his name. He's the king of Salem, which is most likely Jerusalem. Psalm 76 verse 2 links Zion with the place named Salem. This is probably, in fact, the place where Melchizedek is from. It's probably the place that David will later take in 2 Samuel 5 to be the capital city. So yes, there's lots of, lots of resonances moving forward from here as Psalm 110 is spoken by David, the, the, priest, the priest king psalm here, right? In the city where Melchizedek was the king and priest. I mean, that's all kind of under the surface, but this Genesis text says this Melchizedek, king of Salem, is priest of God Most High. And all of this is important in Hebrews 7. But before we go back to Hebrews, can I, I'm just going to finish this in Genesis. Because what's Melchizedek there to do in this very mysterious moment of the narrative? What's his role here, if I can put it that way? I mean, he's a priest, but what exactly does he do? He blesses Abraham, right? Only look at the blessing. It's a priestly blessing because what's the purpose of the blessing? What is it saying? It's reminding Abram that it's God most high possessor of heaven and earth who's blessing him. Right? Melchizedek arrives as a special emissary of God. It's my understanding. And he comes to bless and to confirm God's work in Abraham's life. Even the victory that Abram just experienced is firmly tied to that blessing from God. You could say, I would say, Melchizedek is here mediating the blessing to Abraham. And why? Why do it right then in this mysterious moment? Well, maybe because the king of Sodom is about to tell Abram, you could just take all the possessions you want. In other words, what does Abram need to be faithful in that moment? You see, he needs to be reminded that it's God most high possessor of heaven and earth who's blessing him, not the king of Sodom. It's not Abraham's place to take this from the king of Sodom. It reminds me of David not being willing to just take the things that the Lord had promised to him when it wasn't time. And so Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, functions as God's representative, conferring God's blessing. Does Abraham get it? Did he understand that, as Melchizedek said, God is the source of all he has, all the blessing he's received, all the promises that have been made to him that he's supposed to trust in now? Yeah, he did. He gives a tenth of everything. And I think the point is that if Melchizedek's a priest of the Most High God, then who's Abram actually giving this tithe to? At least symbolically. Well, he's giving it to the Lord. 
He's acknowledging the truth of what Melchizedek just said. And then I don't know whether he makes a vow with Melchizedek in that moment or not, but it kind of seems like he might have because then he repeats the exact words that Melchizedek used in blessing him in order to respond to the king of Sodom. So, there, I'm just trying to make sense of what Melchizedek is doing as a priest. He makes it so that Abram holds fast to the promise. Having responded faithfully to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. So, now, if that's even close to right as to what's going on here, we return to Hebrews. And I'm just going to be quick and sum it up. I think the author of Hebrews is saying that that Melchizedek, both in what he does there and in the way that he's talked about in this passage in Genesis, is a type of Christ our high priest. For starters, he's both king and priest in one person, which is true of Jesus, of course. The king, you know, the name he goes into, the, the author of pastor goes into the name. Melchizedek in Hebrew literally means king of righteousness. He's a righteous king. We've already heard that about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. But of the son of God, of the son, he God says, your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. Okay. The pastor says, king of Salem, that means king of peace. Taking Salem to be a, a, a form of shalom. So that he's not only righteous, but he brings peace. Isaiah 9 comes to mind here where you could think about the text where the one who is the prince of peace is said to go on to rule with righteousness. The, the righteous rule of this king brings peace. Jesus is our peace. I mean, there's lots of ways you could connect the, the significance of the titles as a type of the Messiah of Christ. There is all that, but then I think it's fair to say the pastor's main focus, since none of that's picked up as we move on, is on the king who's also the priest, the priest who strengthens Abram, who mediates the blessing, and who very remarkably, the pastor thinks, <laughs> in a book that's full of genealogical content, has nothing said about his origins. There's no antecedents mentioned to Melchizedek. It is, I admit, an argument from silence, but I think the pastor's thinking, why might that be? And now you remember that the point of Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The pastor now reads Genesis in light of that statement and says, well, where in this narrative could we begin to see the fact that there's this foreverness quality? to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so the pastor makes the connection backwards from Psalm 110 verse 4 to what Genesis 14 doesn't say. <laughs> and then he says in Hebrews 7 verse 3, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Okay, now listen. This is not because in my view though it's not everybody's, but not mine, I don't think this means Melchizedek was actually divine or something. I don't think that the point is that Melchizedek truly didn't have a father or a mother and was not born and did not die. No, I think he was actually the king of Salem 
in Canaan, a man whom Abraham met. Not a heavenly or a divine figure, or if, if you're going to push it that way, I think you've got to go here, and some people do go here, who suggest that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. I get why some people say that, given the language that's here. I mean, no beginning of days, no end of days. Sounds like Son of God to me. But I don't think that's quite right, though it's hard. The point is other than that. As one commentator puts it, quote, Genesis identifies Melchizedek as a priest, but says nothing about his genealogical qualifications to serve as priest. In other words, Melchizedek stands out as a priest in that there is no genealogy relative to his priesthood. You hear the, the emphasis there. One could not serve as Levitical priest unless one could demonstrate that one was genealogically qualified. Melchizedek, on the other hand, appears on the scene in the narrative of Genesis as one, not as one who was born or as one who dies. Therefore, in the narrative text as written, he continues as a priest forever. Like... Jesus, the Son of God. <laughs> it's an argument from how the narrator structures this chapter in Genesis. Only this all gets really complicated really fast. I just think the key is that the whole thing actually runs the other way. The pastor is making it clear, I think, at the end of verse 3, in Hebrews 7, Melchizedek was made to resemble the Son of God. You see it there in verse 3? Not the other way around. It was Melchizedek, whose narrative appearance, read here now in light of the psalm, as one who is without beginning and without end, Melchizedek's appearance points forward to the fact, to the one who, in fact, is without beginning and without end. That is the Son, the one whom the pastor has already told us in Hebrews is without beginning and without end, who's the heir of all things, the one through whom all things were created. You see, in the end, it's not so much that the son occupies the order of Melchizedek as that the son is the order to which Melchizedek points. So that the significance of Melchizedek is this. He foreshadows the son. He's a type of Jesus of the one who really is our eternal king and priest, who really does mediate to us the very blessing of God himself, that we might hold fast to the hope set before us. This is, in my understanding, the significance of Melchizedek, which means now I have no time to tell you, but I'll just read some verses and say a couple things about the superiority of Melchizedek. And this pushes into next week. Abraham's response, as we look at verse 4, is the starting point now. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Which is what the pastor says, not because he's ultimately trying to praise Melchizedek, but because he's praising the son to whom Melchizedek points. Abram acted in faith. He acknowledged a superior mediator by offering him the Lord's tithe and receiving from him the Lord's blessing. 
in this, the pastor stresses, Melchizedek and the great high priest to which his appearance points is superior to what would come later in the scriptures, the Levitical priesthood. This is of a different category. This is more for next week. Just look at verses five and six. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, from their brothers and sisters, though they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So in other words, as the pastor says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Since Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he is greater than Abraham, for his was a priesthood that mediated the very blessings of God. Then the pastor notes again in verse 8, rather complicatedly, how this mysterious way Melchizedek is, is presented in Genesis points forward to Jesus as the great high priest. He says nothing, you know, the text says nothing about Melchizedek's death. The text says nothing about priests that come after him. And so the pastor asserts that the way the Genesis text testifies to Melchizedek is the reality of the living priesthood, the priesthood that keeps on uh, going eternally. For the pastor, bottom line, Melchizedek is pointing to Jesus Christ in how he is presented in Genesis. It's Jesus Christ who is the great high priest who has actually conquered death and lives forever. Not so the Levitical priests, for in one case, he says in verse 8, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Then there's this one more thought in the text, which seems pretty odd to us in how the pastor appeals to the idea that within Abraham are all of the descendants that come after him. And so in verse 9, he says, one might even say, well, maybe one would even say, that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Not exactly the devotional thought that we all take away. But there it is. Even the Levitical priesthood acknowledges the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood. <laughs> well, that's enough. For today, it's enough to say this. Melchizedek is a figure of great significance and obvious superiority as the pastor reads Genesis 14 in light of Psalm 110. Because even Israel's patriarch, the man of faith, the receiver of the unchanging promises of God acknowledges Salem's priest king as his intermediary to God. Abraham received God's blessing through a priest, the priest king of Jerusalem, who is greater than all of his offspring, Levi and Aaron and all the rest, so that Abram is then able to hold fast to the promises in the moment of testing. And that's the point, I think, that is still there for us. We too need a priest. <laughs> we too need the superior priest who is the priest king 
of Salem. The king of righteousness and peace who will bless us with the same. For the author of Hebrews, this all points forward to the one who, according to Psalm 110, has been declared a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's Jesus. He's arrived at last. And having died once for all to atone for our sins, he's risen from the dead and lives forever to intercede. The pastor still has much to say about all that. And as we continue to consider it, May it be a strong encouragement to us today and this week and forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.